Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Since its original publication in 1961, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller has become a classic of anti-war literature, gaining fame during the Vietnam War for its dark and satirical look at American military life. Filmed to middling results by Mike Nichols in 1970, a new miniseries on Hulu has brought the novel back into the spotlight, where its focus on circular reasoning and insanity seems apropos to life during the current American regime. Catch-22 was Joseph Heller's first novel. In the 1970s, he wrote the novel Something Happened and Good as Gold, and in the 80s, God Knows and Picture This, and the nonfiction No Laughing Matter about his struggle with Guillain-Barre syndrome. In 1994, Joseph Heller came out with a sequel to Catch-22 titled Closing Time, which deals with what happened to the lead character Yossarian and other characters after the end of World War II. Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to chat with Joseph Heller on October 17, 1994, about Closing Time, Catch-22, and other aspects of his career. This interview has not been heard since 2000, when it aired following the death of Joseph Heller at the age of 76. I recall in 1974, when your second novel came out, something happened. People were saying, it's so different from Catch-22. It should be a sequel. One of the things that accounts for many of the unfavorable reviews was the disappointment the viewers had that uh, in, in expecting my next novel to have the same spirit, the same literary approach to subject matter that Catch-22 had, uh, it didn't have it. It was a, a conscientiously dissimilar to Catch-22. I'm one of the people who absolutely loved Something Happened when it came out. Catch-22 okay. was, I think, widely recognized. Uh, no, not when it, not when it came out. <laughs> it took a long time for Catch-22 become, uh, to become the widely adored novel, the revered novel it is today. I didn't realize how revered it was until reading the reviews of Closing Time. Well, when I was in college, everyone read Catch-22. It was, I guess, 19, late 1960s, and that was the book yes. that people read, uh, the anti-war novel that related World War II to Vietnam. That would be the, the mid and late uh, 1960s. I must say again that the reception of Catch-22 when it came out in hardcover was not only mixed, but, but widely mixed, and, and the, many of the unfavorable reviews were, were vitriolic, antagonistic, <laughs> and, and Often the uh, the invective was such as to indicate a front on the part of the reviewer that such an impotent and innovative novel of Catch-22 would be written. But it seems in looking at all of your works and thinking about the reviews of all of them, most of them have started out with 
mixed reviews anyway. If, if Catch-22 didn't do it, neither did any of the others. That's true. It's, uh, uh, th- th- there is uh, contentiousness in the reviews of all of my novels been true of Catch-22. It's true of Closing Time. I can I can attribute to certain factors, but one that I think is, uh, is probably solid and almost objective is the fact that my books are difficult to review, and reviewers don't like the idea of having to work very hard to define a book. I could not tell you what Closing Time is about. If you asked me to describe Closing Time or what the plot is, I would say the second question, the plot of Closing Time is a novel itself, the, the way it's constructed and, and, and the way the material is presented. I would say same thing about Catch-22. I could not describe Catch-22 to you in a way that would really define the book or describe the book. But you don't write for the critics, or do you? For whom do you write? I write for myself and an audience I think has the same taste I do. But being human and being American, there comes a point at which the critics and the reviewers uh, uh, are important, and they they can produce an emotional effect. I'm not talking about the commercial value now. Uh, To to be praised in public is is, is a wonderful, wonderful feeling after the five or six years that I spend in writing a a novel. To be dismissed uh, is a wounding experience, and to be dismissed contemptuously or insultingly is uh, uh, an unforgivable wounding experience. I'm at a stage now in my life and my career where the important thing is the work itself. That's where the achievement is. I live in a country where achievement is related to popular acceptance. So that, even though the novel Something Happened was good and significant, and I knew it, my editor knew it, even though in closing time, my own editor, the British editor, the German editors, we, we, we accepted it with, with such, such respect that we all agreed that the achievement was a successful one. Then there comes a second phase, which is not at all connected with the creative process, with the artistic process, if I use that word, and that is producing the novel, publishing it, and introducing it in a way that will get one acceptance, recognition, uh, not necessarily approval, but at least a serious consideration. And then there is that other thing that's uh, tied in with the American ideal of success, which is popularity. We live in a country in a time where social status is almost directly defined by the popularity of the person, whether it's in film, whether it's in poetry, whether it's in painting, and whether it's in, in novel writing. The chances are that Sidney Sheldon or Jackie Collins is more highly regarded than I am by more people. The chances are good, because, and there are many people who've never heard of Joseph Heller. Now, this has little to do with the, with the different novels we're writing or the merit of our novels. But Sidney Sheldon or Jack, Jackie Collins walking into a nightclub or Judith Grant's walking into a nightclub would, would, would cause a stir. I might not even be recognized by anybody. And yet we know that 30 years down the road, nobody will know who those people are. I'm pretty confident that, if nothing else, certainly Catch-22 will be around, and I suspect despite the reviews, so will closing time. Closing time will be around for a long time. Catch-22 will and something happen. Will my other novels picture this are good as gold and God knows will be around sporadically because I still meet people who tell me they love God knows or they, or they love picture this or, or good as gold. I think the three novels that will endure, and, and they're already regarded with very highly, are, are something happened, Catch-22, and I think closing time for me. 
The, the, the best reviews of closing time, which and reviews that were coming out the past three weeks, have been in the most thoughtful publications by thoughtful critics. And they tend to be all favorable, not totally favorable. All of my books are criticized for one thing or another. Either the humor is weak or the humor is strong, but the sober elements are weak. But uh, I'm talking now the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker Magazine, the Sunday Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer. These, those were long reviews, and they were good. Speaking of the New York Review of Books, my, my son Ken, who is a great admirer of yours, brought that review by Thomas R. Edwards to my attention. And two points that Thomas makes, uh, uh, Thomas Edward makes, I found particularly striking, and, and I would like you to comment on them. One is, Edwards suggests that Yossarian, Singer, and Rabinowitz, three leading characters in Closing Time, are in effect three aspects of what's really the same person. Is he, is he on target? He's very much on target. That was something I would not, never dare offer in an interview unless the question came up of that specifically. Uh, the, the, the answer is yes. There are different aspects of the same person. Uh, and they share attributes and they share experiences, apart from the fact that they all have a son, Michael. I distribute aspects about them in a way to, to indicate they have shared experience. Yosarian's work history and Sam Singer's work history are identical, practically identical. In the nature of their work, neither has worked at anything involving a product they respect. And Sam worked for Time magazine as I did. Yosarian did the same work somewhere else. They each had the same ambitions. They wanted to be fiction writers when they were young. Even more pointedly, they, they aspired to be published in the New Yorker magazine. Yosarian never was, Sam Singer never was, and Joe Heller never was. <laughs> Sam Singer knew Joe Heller. Sam Singer knew Joey Heller, the kid across the street. He knows him for a couple of reasons. One is I thought it would be an interesting new touch in a novel to put the author name in as a kid. Second thing, since so much of Sam Singer's past was obviously autobiographical, I did not want the reader to think it was entirely based on me. So when Sam Singer talks about the Joey Heller lived across the street and gives certain facts of his life, those are mine. My father died young. My mother supported the family by doing sewing. I did work for Western Union when I was in high school, and I did want to be a writer. And later on, when Lou Rabinowitz is running through people he grew up with who were already dead or, or been medically, medically ill, and that realized that he, at the age of 58 or 68, has lived much longer with his Hodgkin's disease, he puts Joey Heller in among the friends he had who had been stricken with ailments. There's one, one aspect in particular of Lou Rabinowitz which intrigued me and that I, I would be very pleased if you'd be willing to comment on it, and that is his attitude and his relationship with Herman the German. It's presented exactly as it happened, although it's dramatized and emphasized in fiction. Lou Rabinowitz is based on a real friend of mine. If you look at the acknowledgments at the end of the book, you'll see that uh, uh, I give thanks to, to Marion Berkman and the memory of her husband, Lou. It is based in a general way, the chronology, on, on his actual experience. She cooperated with me when she knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a novel about Coney Island, my own experience, and her husband 
he was a friend of mine since about the age of nine, nine or ten. So she gave me information on telephone, sent me letters about their courtship, their marriage and the rest. And she told me what I knew, that he could not stand Germans because they were anti-Semitic. Even after the war, he would, when he made money and began investing well, he would never buy a product from Egypt after 19, the 1948 war. And then she told me this is an actual a story. He was in the hospital when he came back from overseas. He was not in the infantry, by the way. That's invented. Uh, he was not in Dresden with Kurt Vonnegut, who's also in the book. But he came back and he had a d double hernia needed surgery, and the orderly was a German. And by the time she came to visit him, a German POW, he had maliciously, almost sadistically, almost furiously trained that orderly to jump at every command he made, and she could not stand it when she saw that. And that's in a novel. She could, he could not stand seeing the German POWs here. I was astounded when I got in the army and I saw these brawny, healthy, big guys with shovels standing around doing nothing all sunburned. By the time I got in the army, we did have German prisoners of war here. And I wonder, what the hell are they doing here? They're supposed to be a prisoner. <laughs> and I'm working, I'm doing basic training, I'm marching, I'm in parades, I'm doing calisthenics, and these guys are sitting, standing around smiling at all of us. Was the incident of, let him go or I'll get undressed right here, does that happen? In a letter, she told me that's what she said to him. She said, Lou, if you don't let him go, I'm going to take my clothes off here. Very many of the incidences are based on real things, which I then enlarged. That one came from a letter of hers, and I felt very comfortable and happy doing it because I knew they were based on true incidents. And that gives me the confidence to go into what's called the, the hell of exaggerations, the hell of ironies, the hell of distortions. But do you feel then, as I know many authors do, that there is nothing that you can concoct that matches the, the, the bizarre and fantastic things that really happen? I wouldn't go so far as that. I think I have concocted a great deal in Catch-22 and in closing time uh, that exceeds reality and exceeds probability. When I do it, I tend to do it in a way that lets the reader understand I am now into the surrealistic or I am now into burlesque. And that is characteristic, I think, of all my novels. There is something in them that is an exaggeration to the point of non-reality. World War II was your formative, I guess, the formative event of your generation. Vietnam was the formative event of mine. I don't know what is the formative event of the generation after mine. Can you comment a little about how you think those different events affected each of the generations and where that ties in with the apocalyptic vision of closing time? It would be hard for me to do it without, <laughs> without going away and, and organizing my thoughts. Differences were these. I can give you the differences. World War II, after Pearl Harbor, it was awarded that uh, had the approval of the, almost the entire population. And it was the only war in the history of this country about which that could be said. And after World War II, there was a feeling of triumph, a feeling of victory, and we had an expanding economy, or we seemed to have. I don't know where all the money came from, even to fight the war, and I, and I mentioned that point in closing time. On Monday, one-third of the country was ill-housed, ill-fed, and ill-closed, and then on Thursday, uh, we were producing Liberty ships and Boeing bombers and the rest. Uh, after World War II, 
there was a GI Bill of Rights. I benefited from it. Yosarian benefited. Some singer benefited. Several million Americans benefited. We went to college, which most of us never thought we would do. We went to college with the expectation that when we came out of college, there'd be a job waiting for us that we would like to do. Work we wanted to do. And for most of us, that turned out to be true. Vietnam was a different thing entirely. It was, it, it was a war to which the country stole. Uh, there was never given a basis for our involvement in it that was convincing to the population. Again, we did not get into the war until after Pearl Harbor. And on that same Sunday, Hitler declared war on the U.S. before Congress met on Monday. Uh, Vietnam, we were in the war without knowing we were in it. Uh, it was done secretly. It, it was done over objections. It was, it was never popular with the population, and there was no good reason for having given for having fought it. Uh, and when the, when the war was over, the economy was not particularly good. The servicemen, uh, I doubt they had pride. I, I find this to be true. The literature I've read on the Vietnam War is the best war writing I, I, I've ever I've ever experienced the nonfiction, Michael Hare's dispatches, Philip Caputo's uh, A Rumor of War, the, the novel by, by, by Tim O'Brien and Gustav uh, Horsberg. Uh, it, it, it's the most gripping war literature I've ever read. And one reason is Kurt Vonnegut gave it to me when I told him. He says, that's the literature that was written by people who were in combat, whereas he and I, we, we were marginally in combat. He was shelled and he was taken prisoner, was in Dresden. I was overseas as a bombardier at a time when missions were very easy for my bomb group. The Vietnam War was horrible and horrifying, and we were given descriptions of it. And uh, when, they, when the veterans came out of the war, I don't know what they had to look forward to or what they had to be proud of. I think the Vietnam War gave us a good reason to be suspicious of our government in the way that I was in Catch-22, but by implication. In Catch-22, the biggest threat comes not so much from the Germans in combat. The biggest threat to sanity, security, to, to, to the servicemen comes from their own superior officers. Their, their private ambitions, uh, which have their analogs and political ambitions, uh, their inefficiency, their incompetence, their lack of sensitivity to their responsibilities. I think by the time of the Vietnam War, that was now evident. There was no good reason after the Vietnam War ever to trust a statement from anybody in government again. And at the end of closing time, one of the lines I like, when they're on the ground and a man named Dr. Strangelove is in charge, he's making his announcements, and he says, since all the bulletins you receive will come from official sources, there's no reason to believe any of them, so we're not going to issue any. Another element that relates Catch-22 to closing time is the Catch-22 itself, the Catch, and the Freedom of Information Act yes. of, of modern days, the big circle that you can never escape in a government edict. Yeah, well, the one I use in, in, in closing time, one of those I use is the Freedom of Information Act. It is a piece of legislation which obliges government agencies to release it, all the information they have on, on a person who requests it, except the information they have that they don't want to release. That comes up in closing time. So there's no way of knowing whether the Freedom of Information Act is being obeyed or not. Another how, uh, kind of a scary thing that's in closing time is, uh, is uh, 
when you're savvy and find he's being followed by a private investigator who knows things about him that he doesn't even, even know about himself. And at one point he says, I'm not quoting exactly now, he says that that's kind of personal, isn't it? And Gaff says, Mr. Yosari, nothing is personal anymore. They can, through, through electronic means, they can be recording this conversation as, as we're having somebody we don't even know about. The fact that Nixon was taping conversations, all of them, and was not the first one to be doing it. They can tap phone lines. Uh, and I don't even know who they are anymore, whether it's the FBI, the CIA, or, or some more secret organization, such as the people who, who arrest the chaplain when they find out he's passing heavy water. It seems to me that the person Richard Nixon is almost a fictional character out of Catch-22. When you were following his career, did you see the absurdity in, in that at all? He was an absurd man from the beginning, long, long before he came, became president when he was Eisenhower's vice president. The absurdity is that a man like him can achieve the White House or a man like... Uh, any of the presidents we've had, I would say, since, uh, since, since Eisenhower. Eisenhower had stature. I preferred Adlai Stevenson to him, but in office there was a, a certain presence he had as, as a chief executive. Along with the character in my book, Sam Singer and his wife and, and, and Lula Benowitz, I've had not much respect for any president since, and I don't see why I should have, and I don't see why anybody else should have, except those who hope to profit by having her an ally in office. Dick Lupoff. In closing time, there are a number of references to the, the sitting president at the time when the book takes place. Uh, which is itself not quite clear to me whether it's 1994 or 1984, which in itself I wonder if that is a, a subliminal or covert reference. But also, to me, it seems as if Dan Quayle is president. The president has certain attributes of Dan Quayle. In the original version of Closing Time, which started years and years back, George Bush was president, Dan Quayle was his vice president, and I had one or two chapters, very funny, extensive chapters, dealing with Bush's resigning and Quayle taking office and the whole country pleading with Bush not to resign because Quayle would take office. <laughs> uh, but by the time the book was finished, number one, Bush was out of office, and number two, it was out of proportion. It was a funny chapter, but it, it was slowing down the, the, the forward movement of my novel even more than other things was slowing down. What you do have in closing time is this. You do have a presence who's not nothing vicious about him. He's rather simple-minded. And through being simple-minded and careless, he, he produces an action which may lead to the, to the, the, the apocalypse and the end of the world and may not lead, lead to the end of the world. But it's not done through anything psychopathic. It's just done pure simple-mindedness and playfulness, which I think is how we got into the Vietnam War. I think it's how we got into the Gulf War. Uh, no, there are no real reasons ever given that were convincing that would justify it. He does have the characteristic of Dan Quill. He is from Indiana, and he does have a fundamentalist Christian's belief in that he believes in every detail of, of the flood, and he thinks evolution is a lot of bunk. You, you mentioned this this deleted chapter from Closing Time, and I, I've also been aware that uh, early in your career you wrote 
short stories and a number of other pieces which I don't believe are part of any of your books. Would we ever be able to get our hands on, on a collected uh, miscellanea of Joseph Heller? Not while I'm alive. <laughs> uh, they're accessible. The short stories and, and the early pieces were given to the Brandeis Library and, and people who do books on Joseph Heller, and there have been five or six and there's another one in progress, they do describe and do make reference to them. They're not particularly good. They were written when I was very young. The, the ones that were published are available. Were, the stories were published in Esquire and the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, I was very youthful. They, they were derivative. They were imitations of Hemingway and John O'Hara and Irwin sure. And you, they're available if anybody wants to do the research. They're not valuable as literature. The, the, the nonfiction pieces were humorous. The only way I can write nonfiction if it's a, a reminiscence about my experience and I can make it funny or I can make it serious, as in No Laughing Matter, which was about my experience with Guillaume Beret. I'm no good at nonfiction. And I was, I was skillful youth precociously skillful at short story writing while I was an undergraduate. So I was able to produce short stories that were accepted for publication. But then I pretty much stopped writing when I, by the time I left college because I realized these stories were not much. They weren't saying much. They weren't doing anything new. And I stopped writing till I decided about 30 years old. There's, I stopped writing, I'm talking about a three-year period. I may have produced a short story uh, or two that, in that period. But... Uh, uh, and then at the age of 30, back in New York City, after teaching in Pennsylvania, I thought I could write a novel. I, maybe I was mature enough. And the, the novel that came to me was Catch-22. What was the relationship of your real-life experiences in the war with the experiences of Yossarian and Milo and all the other characters in Catch-22? Only in the matter of factual detail did they correspond with my experience. I was a bombardier. I was stationed in Corsica, which is the island of, of Pianosa. I did fly missions over the targets that were described uh, in Catch-22. The organization of the squadron and the bomb group uh, came from my own experience. The fact that there's a flight surgeon, there was a, that there's a group chaplain, that each squadron had a had a commanding officer, that we went to rest leaves in Rome. And had a wonderful, fantastically wonderful time. If, for someone like myself, who's always loved to eat, and it was just discovering sex, uh, it, it was it was like paradise. It was, except I didn't have to die, die to get there. I did not experience the turmoil that Yosarian did. I did not experience the superior officers of nature he did. I never had trouble with the superior officer. There was never any question about the efficiency. And Leighton Catch-22, Yosarian, when he's having a debate in the hospital, says we were, pretty, we were a damn good squadron. We did, we worked pretty well, and I flew my mission. So even his, uh, he, he takes a little bit of pride in his work. But you, what motivates Yosarian and what, what uh, what's the word I want, um, informs the book, is not my experience in the war, but my experiences after the war when I was educated, when I was reading newspapers, when I was thinking critically, and had a, and had a good view 
of what American political life was like and economic life was like. And Catch-22 was published in the 60s. It was popular in the 60s, but it was a novel that was shaped in the 50s by the Korean War, by the McCarthy hearings, by the uh, racial unrest and, and attempt to find solutions, and by the Cold War. The fact that even under Eisenhower, we had a Secretary of State who was boasting that he would carry the country to the brink of war, and the threat of another atomic war uh, with Russia, and, and the war, almost threatening war with China all the time, over Formosa, over two islands, Matsu and Kimoi, I think. And that what frightens me now, as I recall this, is it was quite possible that we could have gone to war with China over those two islands that nobody even thinks about anymore. Was the book really called Catch-18 at one time? Yes, it was called Catch-18. The first chapter was published in New World Writing Number 7 in 1955 as Catch-18. The number had no significance to me, 18. It was changed because the same season as Catch-22 was finally finishing coming out. A better-known author, Leon Uris, was going to publish called Mila 18, and it was unlikely that book buyers or book reviewers would want to deal with two books with number 18 in the title. So after a great deal of soul-searching and agonizing, uh, at my editor's suggestion, he said, why don't I call it Catch-22? And I said, my God, that's it. <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, I told him the story, the story about Catch-18 today, and he said, well, Catch-22, that's a much more appropriate title. And then he paused and said, well, wait a second. Maybe now it is at the time. Who knows? He's absolutely right about it. I could say that 22 is more appropriate because it, it, it reflects certain patterns of structure in the novel, but that's not why it's a good title. It's a good title because the book was... <laughs> the, 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 the book meant, began to mean a lot to more and more people. Were there any earlier uh, attempts at novels, fragments or, or failed attempts before Catch-22? I would say no, but recently, well, a year or two ago, an archivist at the Air Force Academy, he, he, he went into the whole history of, of pre-publication history of Catch-22 and the first year of publication. He has found correspondence in libraries, which indicates that I had started a novel. I was corresponding with an editor who published one of my short stories. My memory of that is very, very dim, and it goes back long before I thought I could do a novel. It goes back to maybe 1946 or 47. I have no idea how far I got with it or what. I do not regard that as a serious attempt. Well, I recall uh, hearing an interview uh, or reading an interview around the time of the publication of Something Happened, where someone asked you why it took so long between books, and you said, well, I started a number of books, but never quite got into them. Do those fragments exist? No, no. I, I, I doubt I said that. And, and if it was published that way, then I, I, I was not quoted accurately. Uh, I did not start another book before Something Happened. I think Something Happened was started maybe eight months after Catch-22 was came out and, and when I had time to think again and that has been my pattern ever since. I publish a novel, it takes a year or so after publication when I go about giving interviews like this which I enjoy very, very much, I enjoy doing very much and then there comes a time when nobody wants to interview me anymore <laughs> and I start thinking of another book. I did not start another novel between Catch-22 and, 
unquote, unquote. I mean, something happened, took so long because I had to work full time at teaching in order to support a wife and two children. Catch 22 was probably the least profitable of my novels. Now, over the 30 year period, if somebody wanted to take the trouble to calculate the income, it was probably significant, substantial. It did not produce much money for me until 1970 or 71 when the motion picture came out and caused a tremendous sale in the paperback in a concentrated period. But 1971, was I was almost finished with the novel. I remember at the time, my wife and I, a lot younger than we are now, all of us were, went to see a double bill of Catch-22 and Slaughterhouse-Five. Did you ever think of those two in tandem? No, I didn't think of them in tandem. And I, uh, I didn't see the movie I, of, of Slaughterhouse-Five. I saw Catch-22 only because I was connected. <laughs> By that time, I stopped going to movies very regularly. No, I, I can't see a connection between them, other than the same moral attitude and, and, and the fact that Kurt and I have our own literary personalities. They're individual. Uh, our sentiments tend to be the same. I don't think our books are at all alike. In Slaughterhouse Five, I would say a third or more of the book has to do with fantasy figures. Uh, my fantasy figures are <laughs> spring from the uh, symbolic or the uh, or, or the subconscious. Uh, I, I I don't I, I don't think the novel. But the other people classify as they used to use the term black humorist, and Time Magazine once did a piece on it. And they had about nine novelists who, who, to my mind, had almost nothing in common. But you and Vonnegut are personal friends. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. He, I, he has a summer house near where I have my permanent house, and, and, and we, we do see each other frequently. I am a closer friend, let's say, with Mario Buzo, which is a friendship that goes back before either one of us became well-known. But with Vonnegut, um, comparisons to Slaughterhouse-Five have to creep up in reading Closing Time because of your description of the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, I don't know why that necessarily follows as literary similarities would come from my using Vonnegut's experience uh, in in closing time. You say comparisons have to come up between the well, two? They, they did to me in the sense that... that well, the that, episode. I mean, Vonnegut describes being a prisoner in, uh, in Slaughterhouse-Five, and he does it in one of, one of the speeches he makes. If, if that's what you're referring to, yes, recollections of it. Are intended to come up. So that Lou Rabiner is talking, and Lou Rabiner doesn't read books, but his family tells him this guy Vonnegut wrote a book about the experience, which he has, which he has not read. To that extent, uh, it, it is intended to recall Vonnegut and to recall Slaughterhouse Five and the other writing that Vonnegut has done, done about uh, uh, about being a POW. And, and Vonnegut was consulted on this. I sent him the pages of the experience of uh, being in the Battle of the Bulge and, and having, being in the unit that was sort of surrendered in total. He, uh, Vonnegut says it's the largest surrender in history of a, of a unit fighting for him. Uh, somebody in back of him, some major or colonel, surrendered the whole regiment or division and his attempt to escape and being taken free. But I showed him those pages. He gave me information. He corrected a number of details that I had. Uh, and he was personally involved in those portions of, uh, of closing time. And I thought it was fitting to put him in because someone like you who's read his books would know in reading it that this is Vonnegut's experience. As I was reading 
closing time, particularly in the early chapters, and later on I, I think it broadens, but in the early chapters there were two very distinct tones in the book, uh, almost as if I was reading two separate novels with alternating chapters. One was the uh, satirical, comical fantasy life of Yossarian and his relationship with his old buddies from Catch-22, and the other was the very serious and very almost hyper-realistic lives of Sammy Singer and Lou Rabinowitz. Was that, how deliberate was that juxtaposition? That, that was deliberate, it was intentional, and I often thought in doing it I might have a problem because these are two different novels. There's also a third voice. About every four or five chapters you have an omniscient narrator talking about Yosarian and Sammy Singer in the third person. But Sam Singer and Lua Benaritz are, are, are stories told only in the first person. Yosarian is only in the third person. Uh, the spirit of comedy in each is different. The, the, the literary approach is different. With Sam Singer and Lua Benaritz, I was doing something I'd never done before, which to deal with characters in some depth in a realistic way and in a sympathetic way. I've never done that in any of my novels, even in God Knows, where King David is telling a very emotional story. He departs from this period to use my idioms and he, and he uses anachronism, whereas Lewis Bennett and Sam Singer's stories are told to be believed. And, and with the conventional objective of conventional fiction, the reader is supposed to believe that what they say is true and what happens to them actually did happen. Whereas with Yosarian, I think from the very beginning, we are still in a somewhat manic, so realistic wouldn't be the word, uh, I don't have the word, non-realistic way. And the type of comedy that comes up in Yosarian's story is very often the type of comedy that's in Catch-22. That was intentional, and the, the plan was to ultimately not merge the literary styles because the, the difference in literary styles persists even to, the, even to the final pages, but to bring them together and to have what would be a plausible conversation so when you're Sarian and Sammy Singer meet again, neither thinks much of what the other has been doing in the years in between. But in a sense, they recognize themselves as the same person. They recognize themselves as the same person to the extent that they each have accommodated themselves to the social and economic surroundings in which they live, and it was necessary to do that in order to survive. And in order to do that, it also means they have to repress or suppress ideals and the idealism they have as young men. And I think one of the significant lines in that part of the book is when, you know, Sarian says to Sammy, Sammy, if, if we're not careful, we, we grow up to be the kind of people we pretended to despise when young. You also uh, occasionally, every hundred pages or so, have a short chapter about a man named George Tillyou. George C. George C. Tillyou, <laughs> excuse me, um, whose house in Coney Island has sunk down to hell or the lower depths of no, the... the not, <laughs> not quite to hell, and whose steeplechase amusement park has disappeared also. That begins with a factual basis. The steeplechase park was in Coney Island, well, in, well past World War II. George C. Tillyou did have a house across the street with his name on us, the first stone of a stoop, and that stone was sinking. The house is gone now, and steeplechase park is gone now. In closing time, four levels below the 
bus terminal, Mr. George C. Tillier, who had been dead almost 80 years, sat at his roll-top desk counting his money and felt himself sitting on top of the world. So I give you George C. Tillier and Steeplechase as an afterlife. It's not held, he, although he is in touch with Satan and Lucifer, he's on a level far above them, uh, and he has a steeplechase park, and people drift in. Other characters in the book drift in, other characters from our past drift in, like J.P. Morgan and, and John D. Rockefeller, and we do have uh, a few characters from Catch-22 who were killed in Catch-22, Kit Samson and McWatt. Late in the novel, in the second George C. Tillier chapter, he reflects, he, uh, I have him saying, reflecting, he's always glad to see people from Coney Island arrive, like this new man, Lou Rabinowitz, and that's the way I'm, t I'm telling you that Lou Rabinowitz finally has passed away uh, from his Hodgkin's disease. It's very calm, it's very complacent, and it's eternal, he thinks, except at the end of the book, when <laughs> after the, after after <laughs> it starts, his house is sinking again. And when you get them the third time, this is after the president has pressed the button. Rockefeller Center comes crashing in from above, and he laughs because he he, he recalls the old phrase, uh, "Nothing new under the sun." And he said he had just learned something new. Even hell is not forever. Uh, in the sections of Closing Time that deal with the Port Authority bus terminal in New York, the sections that take place in the caverns or layers beneath the terminal are obviously surrealistic or fantastic in nature. But the sections, um, the allegedly realistic sections in the terminal itself above ground strike me as far more hellish. They are far more hellish, and, and, and what makes them even more diabolic and more frightening is that they are true, and they exist, and they exist in public. Uh, and not only do they exist, but the public, of which I am one, regards it now as being natural to our society and natural to our environment. That is more hellish. And and I think at one point, uh, Mike, uh, your son is talking to his son, and, and, and his son says it reminds him of, he's never read Dante, but it reminds him what the Inferno was like. And one of them says, well, it's much worse because it's right out here in the open. Now, when we consider the brave new world that you and I are old enough to remember and Walensky here only has to hear about, the brave new world that we saw in 1945, this glorious dawn. Fifty years have gone by and have led us to the Port Authority bus terminal. Does this fill you with utter despair? It does not fill me with utter despair because I'm 71 years old and I'm a successful novelist and I'm doing okay. And I will not have to live with that for, another, for more than another 20 or 30 years. It is vastly different from the spirit that existed in the past where there was at least the intention of improving all conditions, social conditions, economic conditions for all members of the population. That professed interest, that professed goal has vanished. There was no, 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 no sympathy for the poor, for the homeless, for the children of uh, the poor and the homeless and the criminal classes that they produce. I think we all wish they would just go away. We have no economic and no constitutional means 
of removing them. We are incapable of improving their conditions. I don't think, I don't think the government, I don't think the economy, I hate to use that word, I don't think there's enough money to remedy the situation, even if the government wanted to. And what I do in that bus terminal, in the, in the last scene when I have the wedding, there's a big society wedding, it's the most expensive wedding in the history of the world. It is, it is social, a peasant is supposed to be there as best man, all the most important, the lovely people invited. What they do do for that occasion is sweep away all the derelicts, all the criminals that are in a bus terminal, so they put them in shelters in the suburbs, and they replace them with actors and models hired from the best talent agencies who are more acceptable and more predictable. Early on, you said there were two points in the New oh. York Review of Books that, that Thomas Edward raised, and, and you only only asked me one. Never, well, we, we, we did touch on the second, which was uh, Thomas Edwards did some math on Yelsarian's age oh, yes, yes. and said, now, is he 58 or is he 68? Is it 1984? Oh, is it 1990? No, if, if, that, if that's the question, that's answered very, very simply, and I've admitted it already. Yosarian's age is given once, maybe twice in Catch-22, was 28. Before this book, I didn't want him. I, I didn't want him six years older than my own age. I think I was 22 at the time because he would then be too old to be doing the things he's doing in this book, and he would be almost outside the generation that I'm dealing with. So uh, I made him 68 years old when he possibly would be 75 or 76. One final question about closing time, and then we have a few more other. Other questions. I could go on and on about closing time because I keep... Whenever I hear the phrase, one final question, I know it's not the last question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The central scene that the characters keep coming back to and that the the story keeps coming back to in Catch-22 and in closing time as well is the death of Snowden in an airplane. Is that simply a device that you're using to always bring center your book, or is there something else going on in both books? I don't think there's something else going on. I, I think I, 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 I think it's a technique. I, I don't like the word device. Uh, in, in Catch-22, it is a central action, and, and what, what it, maybe this means there's something else going on. It is to impress upon the reader, despite the comedy, the various forms of comedy, that a man has died in Catch-22, really died, and the last time we see Snowden, his death is described in full and realistically, whereas it's been alluded to uh, throughout the book. In closing time, it's still a prominent event in the memory of Yosarian and the memory of Sam Singer, who was the tail gunner there, and they talk of Snowden's death, and and Sam Singer thinks of Snowden's death as something horrible that really happened close by. There's no comedy, there's no distortion in their memories of him. Uh, In doing a, a little research before this interview, I came across two motion picture writing credits, and I wonder if, if they're your work or another Joseph Heller, Sex and the Single Girl and Dirty Dingus McGee. Right. Sex and the Single Girl was my work to the extent that I did a revision of, of a script that existed and I was given screen credit. Dirty Dingus McGee is probably not my work. I worked on that for four weeks and then five, six, or seven years later, the movie was produced with a different director and a different cast, and I would guess from the cast and director that it probably contained none of my work. But I was given screen credit, and, and about three or four times a 
year I'll receive a check from anywhere from 13 to 23 or, or $29.16 as one of the authors of the screenplay of Dirty Dingus McGee. As for your, your own works, your novels, uh, if I uh, don't misunderstand, you were not exactly thrilled with the film version of Catch-22. Oh, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't exactly thrilled with it. I think I liked it more than, the, more than most people did, but possibly for the wrong reasons. I was just tickled pink to see a movie <laughs> made from a novel of mine uh, in, in which there were characters on the screen, flesh and blood, and I knew these people never existed. I, I know they exist only in sentences in Catch-22. I liked it very much. One of the things I respected respected for was the intentions were of the highest. The intentions of Mike Nichol, director and the screen, screenwriter of Buck Henry, was to do as much as they could to reproduce the novel on film. So that intention was there. And I think maybe because the intention was so serious that the movie did not succeed financially. I sometimes hear can hear Alan Arkin particularly in the Yosarian of Closing Time, was that image ever, ever in your head when you were writing Closing Time? No. I, I, I did not see Yosarian uh, as, as, as being Alan Arkin, and I did not think of Alan Arkin as portraying the image I had of Yosarian. If nothing else, Yosarian describes as being big physically and fearless physically. He, never, he doesn't have to fight. I mean, physically, in, in his relationship to other people, uh, Alan Arkin uh, did not have those qualities. Why have none of your other novels been filmed? I could, that's easy, because they're not filmable, and even Catch-22 is not filmable, which helps explain why they had so much trouble getting a script uh, they could begin begin shooting. I don't have strong narrative lines to my, uh, my books. In fact, in a, a novel like Picture This, there might not even be any narrative lines. Something happened is it's so faint that I'm the only one who knows that the narrative lines something happened consists only of, of a man's wishes, most burning wishes to be allowed to make a three-minute speech at the company convention. And at the end of those 600 pages, he is allowed to. Other than that, there's no narrative line and something happened. And it's a, it's a very vague and confused one in Catch-22. Most movies are made with simple storylines. One of the wonderful things I think about writing novels is that un unlike a uh, gymnast who peaks at age 12 or uh, an Olympic swimmer who peaks at age 16, uh, a, a novelist can just keep going and, and growing and learning. You mentioned some new things that you have done in closing time that you had never done before. Uh, still, by the themes of the book and by the very title of the book, I wonder, do you regard this as a valedictory to your career? I don't regard it as a valedictory to my career. I do regard Closing Time as a novel that encompasses the most in the way of thematic material and, and even, even psychological material and subconscious material and spiritual material of any of my novels. I haven't begun to think about it yet, but occasionally the thought flits across my mind that I doubt my next novel Will, will, will be as large as closing time. And if it is as large, I might not be alive to finish it. Uh, there is that valedictory feeling to closing time, stemming from the title, stemming from the ending of the book, Yosarian's 
optimistically going out from a safe, uh, a safe bomb shelter to keep a date with a woman who's, who's bearing his child and the feeling that maybe everything's going to be all right for all three of them. Contrast with Sammy Singer. Now we're back to the realistic approach. Who knows he's 71, who is, his wife has died. He doesn't expect ever again to become involved with another woman. And he's on an airplane going to visit an old friend. And he's listening to one of his favorite symphonies of mine, which is Mahler's Fifth. And he's reading a collection of seven or eight short stories by Thomas Mann, which has been mentioned in the book before, which contains the story Death in Venice, While the Moon is Turning Red. How important are these relationships between men and women that, that keep recurring in, in Closing Time and in all of your books? The, the real relation between men and women, are the only ones I've really presented are in Closing Time, where uh, the most meaningful, uh, meaningful relationships in the ideal condition has been one of marriage that Sam Singer has enjoyed, marrying a 28, a Gentile girl with uh, three children, and Lou Rabinowitz marrying a Jewish girl, and both of them remaining married for their lives, nurturing children, seeing what happens to them. And it's one of the few American novels in which marriage is presented as, a, <laughs> as an ideal condition, and women are presented without a mocking approach. It certainly is true in my novels. I've, I've never dealt with women before as real people. I've never dealt with marriage as a, as a subject. Happy marriages, satisfying marriage are not the subjects of plays or movies or, <laughs> or novels, but they, they are, to a large extent, the subject of closing time. And do you feel that, that this reflects a change in Joseph Heller or a change in American society? I think it, it reflects neither. I think it reflects a, a change in Joseph Heller's, uh, Joseph Heller's novels. I believe I've always felt, even in closing time, Yosarians, he's been divorced twice and he's involved with another woman, uh, and being single is something he can't endure. I mean, it says early in the book, he, he sort of starved and cooked, he can't learn to make a bed, if for no other reason than that. He wants to be married. I don't think my attitude toward toward anything has changed in the 30 or 40 years I've been a writer, except the attitude toward the novel, and the attitude toward the novel is both reverential, adventurous, challenging, and in this novel I'm trying something different. You're familiar with all my novels, all means five or six. They are, to a large extent, different from each other. If they're similar, it's only because they come from the same literary personality, which is mine. Despite respectful reviews and reputation, Closing Time is mostly forgotten today, though it is easily available online in both paper and ebook. Joseph Heller published a memoir, Now and Then, in 1998, and another novel, Portrait of the Artist as an Old Man, an autobiographical work about an author who was unable to shake the success of his very first novel. It was published posthumously in 2000. The film of Catch-22 is available streaming through Amazon Prime subscription, and the miniseries is available streaming on Hulu. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.